everybody, and welcome to Scope of Practice as we go forward in our fourth season of the podcast. Today, we're going to talk about something that's really on the minds and on the, the tongues of everybody in the field, and it's psychedelic use for medical purposes. Uh, and the history of psychedelic use for medical purposes goes back thousands of years in the cultures of many indigenous people, and even documented in pop culture in the late 1960s by a Peruvian writer in UCLA. PhD candidate Carlos Castaneda, as he wrote of his journey under the tutelage of Yaqui Indian shaman Don Juan Matus for a period of about five years. Whether the account was a true account or a work of fiction is irrelevant. It differed from the accounts of Timothy Leary and Ken Kesey, who preached the recreational use of psychedelics for the counterculture of the late 60s. In the 50s and 60s, there was significant research into the psychedelic experience, which was ground to a halt in the 70s and 80s due to government intervention. One aspect of research in the 20th century that seems lost in history is that the work fell in line with the overall cultural zeitgeist of the field, and not as an outlier investigation. More recently, there has been significant research in clinical trials on the use of psychedelics to combat mental health and substance use disorders. A psychedelic-assisted therapy becomes accepted in the larger field in mental health and substance use disorder treatment, and even in the public awareness. The New York Times actually had an article on MDMA-assisted treatment for PTSD back in 2021, and we here at the CCB feel that getting accurate information out to the field is of paramount importance. Just like any other form of care, there are benefits and risks involved, and it's not an option for everybody. We offer this not as medical advice, simply to inform and elicit discussion. Our guest today is Peter Grayson, Direction of, uh, Director of Addiction and Recovery at Ushama, a network of psychedelic wellness centers treating depression, anxiety, PTSD, alcohol use disorders, and trauma-induced mood and eating disorders with ketamine-assisted therapy with a flagship location in Midtown Manhattan. Having spent over a decade vertically integrated through the addiction treatment space, from a person in recovery to seasoned clinician turned disruptive healthcare executive, Peter was uh, integral into the creation and leadership of the first medically driven comprehensive addiction treatment facility run by physicians utilizing psychedelic assisted therapy and plant medicine. Peter believes that multiple pathways to recovery can coexist, and further, that there is no one-size-fits-all approach. He has a private practice, the Flow Initiative, providing ongoing therapy and coaching for individuals and families, facilitating sustained transformational change. Peter, welcome to the show today. Thanks for having me, Jeff. It's great to be here. Um, in prior conversation, you had mentioned to me that often when you mention psychedelic-assisted treatment, the first response that people people often have is that they tell of their recreational use and whatever was associated with that. Uh, let's clarify exactly what we're going to talk about today so that there is no confusion. I'm so glad you led with that question because, um, yes, uh, let's contextualize it right here. First and foremost, what we are talking about in this conversation is psychedelic-assisted therapy. So the, really the medicalized lane, which is a, a, a tight lane. It's not to say that there aren't many other lanes that exist that, that hold validity to, but that's all we are going to talk about. Mm -hmm. um, and within that lane, you know, maybe even more specifically, how you know, psychedelic-assisted therapy, psychedelic medicine can then integrate into even things like addiction healthcare. Um, so the heart of your question, what are we talking about today? Specifically, the therapeutic applications of psychedelics. And that really, by definition, means that there's a process involved. So we really, 
very much want to uncouple it from recreational use, really any prior association mm -hmm. other than what you touched on earlier, which was really where all of these medications, well, I shouldn't say that, the modern study of these medications all came about really in the clinical, the therapeutic medical kind of realm. Uh, they were then obviously like embraced by, you know, culture in the 60s. Uh, and then what happened, you know, with, with Nixon and, and the drug laws. But, you know, the, the modern meaning, you know, in the last 50, 60 years, resurgence of, of psychedelics compared to, you know, the, the millennia long history of indigenous usage, all for whether it was uh, therapeutic or ceremonial purposes is very strong. So the, the use of psychedelic medicine to help facilitate, and, and that's the key word, to help facilitate as a tool, essentially transformational change of, of you know one type or another, which is really at the heart of a healing process of one form or another, is then you know, really the meat of what we're going to talk about. You know, how does psychedelic medicine, to the best of our knowledge and understanding, work? Um, what is going on? What helps support? You know, in that, I don't want to use the word clinical per se, but I'll I'll just you know maybe umbrella with therapeutic. So in that therapeutic mm -hmm. approach, you know, by nature we're back to talking about a process, um, and, and so. There's some preparation, obviously, the, the the session or the medical use itself, and then the integration uh, doesn't always have to be, you know, within a clinical capacity, but it is within an established model. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't know if that really, you know, yeah. helps contextualize, but but that's the meat of it. And I think that when people in the field have a knee-jerk reaction when they see it, they're looking at it as from the lens of recreational use or of the counterculture, as opposed to using it as medicine. I often say the difference between drugs and medications are one are prescribed, we know the effects, you know, versus unregulated, unprescribed, often very dangerous. So we're we're looking at something that's in a much more controlled environment. Uh, you had mentioned just now about uh, uh, the strong evidence basis is, you know, it's important to note that it does have that strong evidence base. And it gives me a couple of questions. Going right back to what you said, in general terms, now this isn't the same for everybody, you would briefly mention the process of uh, uh, psychedelic-assisted treatment. So let's talk about that a little bit. You said the first part was preparation. So what's happening in the preparation in general? Good question. You know, if I could just take a second and just zoom out because okay. when we're also talking about psychedelic medication, we're talking about a number of different substances that also have a wide variety of modes of action, application, you know, basically the whole package around it. So just want to acknowledge that, you know, kind of to reinforce what you said before, you know, this is not medical advice. You know, I'm not a physician. We want this to be taken as top level. And we're going to stick top level because if we weren't, we'd really have to unpack each of the different substances and really how different they are. And, and with regards to what I'm then going to talk about, even, you know, some differences that then play out in that. But in generalized terms, yes, you know, there are essentially three steps to this process. The preparations, 
the the session itself um, and then the integration. All really of, uh, I, uh, I shouldn't even measure it, but all of prime importance. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, the, the idea of following that process is really at the heart of what keeps it in that, for lack of a better word, medicalized lane. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and that's, you know, back to your point, you know, what, what is the difference between, you know, a medication and a drug? Also intent, you know, um, and intent and framework. Um, so by also, you know, kind of being clear on the intention of, of why these medications are being utilized mm-hmm. and the framework in which they're being administered is you know, really reinforced by that process to keep it in that therapeutic realm. So when we talk about the three and the the, the, the kind of the title of each step or phase really tells what's going on. The preparation, spending time uh, as much as needed uh, to see if the person is appropriate to prepare them for the sessions. Uh, Then we talk about the medication administration. And I would like to talk about what that looks like in session a little bit more. And then the integration, which is very, very, very important where we're putting it all together. Absolutely. Uh, So yeah, I'll I'll take that and kind of go into each a little bit. Simply put, I'll cover each three. Preparation, is just like it sounds, you know, how do you properly prepare? But back to, you know, a process and really trying to establish more of a modality around it, you know, so that we can, you know, again, keep using that word like medicalized, which, which, you know, code, standardize, establish best practices, you know, instill more safety, efficacy measures and things like that. So, Preparation is really important, and it's it's more than just I want to just you know think about it or get my things in order. There's a lot to how you preserve, and these two words are going to come up a lot. The optimal set and setting, uh, set and setting, and really optimizing that is one of the most important components of also you know, preventing any side effects. And I'll get into, you know, mm-hmm. uh, side effects, rifts, and all that a little bit down the road. Overall, you know, remarkably safe medications as a whole. And, and the majority of side effects, barring, you know, a few general ones, tend to be more in the experiential realm. And so therefore, set and setting really help to regulate that type of environment, that type of experience to the best of our ability. So a lot of preparation goes into really back to optimizing, you know, the set and setting, which refers to our mindset going in, you know, not only what's on our mind, our intentions, but really hoping to contextualize, understand and calibrate expectations. You know, so a lot to that, you know, working with the mindset. And then also the setting, the environmental conditions around you. Uh, psychedelic, well, let me just even define psychedelic. Psychedelic as a term, you know, was defined in the 60s in that, you know, period of, you know, that, that, that zeitgeist that you discussed with Cassidy and Leary, and they were going back and forth with Aljous Huxley, you know, needing a name and don't quote me on all this, but it was one of that, you know, contemporary sect to, I think he was like either a researcher or a poet or, you know, in that intersection of that group. And, and 
they want it to be kind of like clinical sounding, proper sounding, and it stemmed from a Greek derivative, but essentially means like mind manifesting. And he wrote it like in a poem to Aljois Huxley, like which I can't even remember, but it's it's pretty catchy. And so the name psychedelic stuck. But the reason I'm bringing it up is because the definition mind manifesting mm-hmm. really means you're going within the mind. So when we think about, especially recreationally, you know, that countercultural application of psychedelics, it was almost the exact opposite. Like, yes, there was a lot of talk about, you know, expanding the mind and consciousness and, and enlightenment, but experientially, you know, when we think about how these drugs, these, these substances were used, you know, it was quite the opposite, you know, go to a concert, you know, be engaged with, you know, peers, socializing, um, basically outward. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what we want to do in a therapeutic setting and context is try and facilitate one to go inward, um, quite the opposite. So things that, you know, might be discussed and prepared for in that preparation of the setting and the environmental you know, conditions, or even things like eye masks, which, you know, some people think it's about relaxation, but it's really about helping to promote you to go inside your own mind, to cut down visual stimulation. Um, also, when we think about, you know, contextually, culturally, what's going on with the quote unquote, and I'm, I'm hesitant to even use this phrase with the connotations that we're trying to break, mm-hmm. but quote unquote, bad trip. Right. You know, it's amazing and fascinating how often you can just so directly track back, you know, a bad trip, an adverse experience with a factor directly related to either set or setting. Uh, so again, why, you know, set and setting really help kind of choreograph uh, and even curate to a certain degree the experience. Um, so preparation is really, really key. Um, mm-hmm. Also, you know, you've mentioned this a few times before, it cannot be stressed enough, especially in the context of how some of these, you know, medications and processes are being hyped up today. This is not for everybody. So before we even enter into, you know, this process, now we're talking about one must be screened, you know, even to establish that you're an appropriate candidate. Mm-hmm. Uh, back to, you know, zoom out, psychedelic medicine is a tool, you know, yes. Sometimes we'll call it a power tool, a very effective tool, works very differently than a lot of other medicine. We can get into all of that. Mm-hmm. But that being said, it's a tool um, and a tool that's not for everybody. So we want to rule out certain things. So is there a history of cardiac issues, history of psychosis, um, you know, a few other contraindications? Bearing that, then, uh, yes, then somebody could be deemed appropriate. But we really have to stress it's not for everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, so go through the preparation. Then kind of have all those elements squared away. Now we get into, you know, that optimal setting where, you know, the journey session will begin. Depending on, you know, the medication that's being utilized, um, sidebar, you know, all I practice in or utilize is ketamine right now because that's Mm -hmm. the only, you know, it's, it's not the only legalized, but 
entirely, you know, 360. It has FDA approval. It is legal um, and can be worked in a clinical capacity. Psilocybin mm-hmm. uh, so has a much you know, different landscape, quickly evolving with, with certain states legalizing, you know, um, MDMA. Uh, actually just released uh, last week, you know, the results of the phase three clinical trials, Mm -hmm. you know, FDA approval is is almost imminent for PTSD on that. Um, But the reason I'm bringing this up is because depending on the medication, the substance in which one is utilizing for the journey, the experience, that's going to look dramatically different Mm -hmm. from, you know, potentially, you know, a very concise, kind of package, you know, that that can all be wrapped up within, you know, an hour, you know, to maybe two hours, you know, tight time frame to to something that might extend a whole day, you know, or longer, um, or certainly a lot in between, you know, very commonly psilocybin journeys, five, six hours, you know, that ballpark. Um, And that, you know, is very regulated, very structured, um, safety is of primary importance. And there's a real fine line why, um, again, hesitate to say only clinical applications, but yes, procedural is key because there is training and experience that is really warranted to help guide somebody. And guide is also a very loaded term. Mm-hmm. That you, know, you want to be there for the individual while they're undergoing uh, the experience. Um, don't really want to take that active of a guide, you know, in terms of like if you think of modern therapeutic approaches, that's not the time to really engage in that. Uh, back to you really want that mind to manifest, uh, tap into one's own innate inner healer coupled with what's going to kind of going on within the systems and neurologically, which again, we'll get into a little bit. So kind of want to let the medication do its own work and really just kind of help guide out of, you know, any, you know, uh, ruts or anything like that. Um, so that being said, the medication session, you know, happens. Um it can be challenging. You know, it's not always this fun, you know, I'm just going to go and see rainbows and unicorns. Um, that, that's part of the process. It, it, it might not be all fun and, and rainbows, but 99, you know, the overwhelming majority of people come out of the experience and say that was, you know, in some regards, beyond words, you know, one of the heaviest, most meaningful, most impactful experiences of my life. Mm-hmm. Uh, wow. You know, um, now we're set up for phase three. And like you said, you know, of real critical importance. And that's the integration, because now we've got the, you know, that was the most, you know, impactful, heavy experience of my life. And then what we also know is going on kind of on the hardware side of the brain. We're now set up, you know, back to like a power tool. We've now, you know, completely graded the ground, you know, broke through the walls, whatever, you know, analogy we want to use. And now what? Uh, That's the integration. You know, the integration is, and now what? Now, how do we take meaning, you know, and derive benefit, you know, channel into a desired outcome what we just experienced? And 
takeaways from that. And also back to, you know, there's a reason that word context keeps coming up. Mm -hmm. How do we contextualize the insights and the new perspectives in which we might have gained? That is going to be an ongoing process. Um, can take many forms, yep. uh, but you know, very similar and, and very often very parallel and even more commonly very intertwined with a therapeutic process, it will unfold. Uh, so it, it can look different for a lot of people, uh, but procedurally and modelistically will kind of follow at least a similar construct. Uh, how do you process? How do you help that make sense of the insights to gain a perspective? Um, how do you integrate you know, that meaning into your ongoing daily affairs, um, into your relationship? Um, and then as you're experiencing that change over time, um, how do you support that to help you know, really sustain that? Um, and so we can't stress enough how critical integration is. I like analogies, full transparency, I yeah. probably overplay them. Um, <laughs> so I'll use one right now. You know, if, if what we're talking about with psychedelic therapy is, you know, like I say power tool, but an engine that's getting us from point A to point B in a real mechanized way that's unlike, you know, any other process, the integration is the oil that keeps the engine yeah. running, the oil that makes the engine operate. Um, it might not do the job itself, but without it, you can't get it done and it can't operate. Um, it's not to, by the way, discount. And when I say those or other people and, you know, whether clinical you know, context talk about it, you get a lot of, you know, talk from the ceremonial, you know, other communities. It's not the only way. So I don't want to have an us versus them. There's a lot of siloization and polarization. Again, I'm only talking about within that kind of medicalized therapeutic context. And within that lane, yes, integration is then the oil that's going to get that engine. If your desire, your intention, which is usually why one undergoes and, and engages in a therapeutic process, is, is some form of desired outcome. The integration is a is an oil that's going to get you your engine there. A couple of things you mentioned really just popped ideas in my head, and and one of the things that you said is it's not for everybody. We know that about every other type of treatment to treat mental health and substance use disorders. No one treatment fits every person, but sometimes in the field field, we look at it as if they do. There is a right one. And there that may lead to this view that psychedelic assisted therapy is outside. The construct is outside of the normal when it's really not. It's just saying this works for the right people at the right time and the right place. Nothing, and, but that's the same with cognitive behavioral therapy or whatever else, EMDR, whatever else we're doing. It's always right place, right time, right person. Right setting. Um, and then you said it's not, you know, it's not always fun. It's not rainbows and unicorns. No type of treatment is 100% exactly. fun. Because when you are dealing with something that is incredibly difficult, it brings up pain. It brings up shame. It brings up all of these things that people have had a hard time expressing and have been holding on to. And it's painful to let that go or to process it. But it's also necessary. Absolutely. When that person is ready, 
not pushing someone to that, but when they're ready to experience that. Those two points really help contextualize the power tool metaphor. Because yes, you know, how is a power tool really you know, effective, especially given the power behind it, you know, as opposed to forget about ineffective, let's just also acknowledge it could then be detrimental. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you know, the right tool for the right job is key. Um, and yeah, you know, there's another element that's kind of an elephant in the room, which is, and I want to be careful about how to, you know, kind of shine some light on it because there are a lot of people who are far more knowledgeable, far higher credentialed, far more experienced than I, who can talk far greater than I am and better about this. But there is an aspect of, you know, a lot of modern psychotherapy revolves around symptom mitigation, you know, as opposed to really, you know, getting to the root of the disorder and really even trying to, even going to bring up a word that's almost taboo, heal, um, mm -hmm. cure, you know, that that's never really entered into the, the context of most modern psychotherapeutic approaches you know it, it revolves largely around psychopharmacology and you know a lot of different modalities that are designed to mitigate the symptoms you know mitigate the impacts the effects fit on them better you know so when we compound those things you know and especially where yes a lot of in this you know even more so in addiction healthcare, you know every figure goes through that you know either round or square hole it doesn't matter what mm -hmm. shape you are um but yeah you know when you really now take the more sophisticated nuanced approach of really looking at an individual comprehensively evaluating and assessing well now what is really going on with this individual and then okay if we can see that all right now you know issues are identified that we do know now based on you know, an incredibly robust set of evidence and clinical trial and, and research and data at our disposal, you know, now are, are clearly indicated as, as uh, appropriate. All right, now, now we've got something here. So yeah, you know, that aspect of, of not for everybody and really needed to screen is, is really key. There's another, you know, little tangent want to bring up with part of the hype, part of the modern excitement is almost a rebound where there's almost so much excitement behind psychedelics. And then I don't want to say with malintent or any, you know, nefarious aspects, but there was a lot of, you know, funding, VC money, P money that came in the space. So there was a lot of interest in a lot of, you know, grandiose claims. Yeah. And yes, this can help anybody. You can achieve in one trip what might take 10 years of therapy, you know, yada, yada, yada. So really want to reel in that hype. And it's, you know, not for everybody has to all, you know, everything we just described. On top of that, yeah, you know, growth change doesn't happen in, you know, the pleasant, comfortable zone. You know, we do know that, but there is, you know, kind of that liminal zone that is that optimal zone that that facilitates that meaningful transformational change and primes one for that. Another aspect of like, you know, power tooling, really being able to concisely deliver, you know, 
the desired result, energy, you know, whatever it is. That's another really fascinating aspect of psychedelic medication is that, yes, you know, with, especially when we think of trauma, right? And we think of the utterly, almost beyond words, painful experience that one undergoes, not just, you know, throughout the, the process of maladaption and that whole evolution, but, you know, even once one engages in, in the therapeutic process, how painful that experience and how protracted that experience might be and multifaceted, you know, the procedures might be to kind of mine out, you know, you know, how and why that pain is being experienced. And, and you know, back to how can we then remediate some of the symptoms of that pain and, and almost simply put sit on it to be able to move mm -hmm. on and, and, you know, function better in life. What, at the heart of, you know, the efficacy of psychedelic medication, uh, the power to uh, uh, you know, mechanism is going on is almost like a shutdown of a lot of those mechanisms in the brain that really, I don't know what the actual word, verb, adverb mm -hmm. is that like, you know, support, promote, propagate that pain, you know. I.e., you know, our defense mechanisms that kick in, our unconscious associations, uh, all these things that are being, you know, categorized into like default mode networks. You know, what we're, yeah. I don't want to even say we because it's them, you know, yeah. a whole lot of, you know, really amazing neurologists, scientists, physicians who we're just standing on their shoulders, you know, are learning about, you know, all the different systems and networkings and complexities of the brain, you know. The whole idea of, oh, this, you know, top brain, bottom brain, you know, limbic system, yeah. lizard brain, that, that, that's like, you know, the pseudoscientific, like the world is flat, you know, mm -hmm. it is so much more complex and nuanced than that, that far more like, you know, these devices right in front of us that we're talking through, um, really, you know, made up of systems and programs and networks that have to, you know, interface and and communicate with each other. So what psychedelic medication does on that hardware side is unlike any other medication that we know of is, is has a really profound effect on all of those machinations from that mm -hmm. default mode network to, you know, other unconscious dynamics. You know, you have disassociative aspects and attributes throughout the experience that yes, while, you know, there might be an unpleasant dynamic to some of the experience, even some pain that might be experienced. What's really fascinating and really almost like nailhead epitomizes the efficacy is what you'll hear, you know, an individual who's undergone, you know, I have undergone, you know, I, I have, I'm a survivor of childhood sexual trauma. I've never been able to process experience in any kind of therapeutic capacity or process what I then experienced in my first psychedelic assisted therapeutic experience, which was an exact, you know, kind of mimic of what's a very common report. I was engaging in what, what I so knew was the most painful, the most disturbing, the very reason I, you know, developed so many maladaptive, you know, mechanisms to protect myself against mm -hmm. all of this. And I was standing with it, holding its hand face to face with it. I knew it's painful and it's hard, 
but I was okay with it and I was getting through it. I had my tool, you know, I'm a surfer, right? I surf in the winter in a winter wetsuit. I'm warmer surfing in the winter in a winter wetsuit sometimes than I am skiing. People think, you know, sometimes, oh, you're crazy. What are you going in the ocean in a snowstorm for? Well, I've got a tool around me. I don't feel it, you know. That's kind of like, you know, a little bit of an analogy. Like, so we're like in our wetsuit, we're in our armor, able mm-hmm. to kind of face these demons, you know, one you know, overly rude and, you know, simplified, reduced version. Um, so we're able to experience the pain, but maybe in such a concise way that we're through it. And, and that can get into the heart of how powerful it can be then and break through. So because the medication uh, psychedelics work very differently on the brain, they kind of, and, and this may not be the right word, hijack the uh, 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 default mode network and how things go. It's We're not looking at symptom mitigation. We're really looking at a much deeper experience. So when that default mode network is set aside, whatever the term may be, you're able to get into the underlying parts that's in the brain. Is that fairly Yes, yes. Um, And I'll reframe it a little bit. Almost the analog of hijack, because in essence, what the DMN default mode network does is it hijacks our brain. It hijacks our consciousness. So what it's doing is really shutting down what is pardon me, a maladaptive process in and of itself, you know, part of human nature, part of just, you know, the developmental dynamics of being, you know, a human being with a consciousness. But what, you know, with, you know, greater science and understanding, really getting a better understanding of or pick clear picture of is kind of what's going on with the psychedelic medication is almost like a reboot of the brain. So like if you were to kind of back to using an analogy of these devices in front of us, you know, like hook it up to diagnostics, it's like almost showing greater system optimization. You know, and in fact, there are, you know, I have them in some of the, I believe the workshop you attended, I had a slide, you know, that showed, you know, system, inter-system communication within Mm -hmm. the brain, you know, a normal brain and a brain, you know, under the effects of psilocybin and the amount of intersystem communication was exponentially greater, you yeah, know, tremendously. Um, when we look at the mind states, and, and this is where really exciting research is being done, like, let's say, of a toddler as they're, you know, learning and developing, you know, what is it that is so open and exciting and embraced by that mind about? accruing ability and knowledge and being open-minded to embrace and accept and and not having an accrual of you know bugs and, and other things that are now kind of contaminating our programs as they are and, and so in essence like back to that analogy of you know hooking up a diagnostic a psychedelic medication might reboot and debug you know, some of those things in the brain that that default mode network automatically like kicks those bugs into action. Those defense mechanisms form the walls that say, no, we're not going to go there. But if, you know, the medication allows those walls to drop and at the same time, the brain to operate almost more optimally, absorb, retain information better, process, compartmentalize, consolidate more effectively. Um, then, you know, we're looking at, you know, kind of, 
you know, more of the possibility to get to the root of what might be going on, you know? Um, and so with that phrase of sit on, you know, that comes the next realm of, well, wouldn't it be much better if we could sit with, you know, mm -hmm. and that's what that greater level of healing is about, you know, getting more to the root, you know, I can now say I can sit with a lot of the traumas that I've experienced in a much different way than for many years, you know, and a lot of the energy in the earlier journeys of my recovery revolved around mm. having to sit on, you know, a lot of that pain, a lot of that discomfort, a lot of what was still, you know, distorted thinking, distorted, you know, operation neurologically, you know, bugs in my brain um, that now we're debugged, you know, to a, to a greater degree. So I'm able to sit with, you know, those programs are able to run concurrently with other programs that are running, you know, at the same time. Um, so, yeah, you know, a greater degree of, dare I say, healing. I, I think that that's an interesting analogy that makes a lot of sense to me as I, I sit and listen. Um, as we've grown and as we live have life's experience that affects our brain that affects our learning that kind of creates that default mode that when this happens our brain does this uh, and it's different for every person based on experiences when you can kind of set that aside or turn it off for a brief period of time and let the brain communicate without all the defense mechanisms it's easier to get to the point of what you're that's trying exactly to do. it that's exactly it, right? And now if you draw back to, let's say, like CBT, the BT, you know, those great alphabet soups of therapy, like what so many of them are designed to do is, and that's a great example of the sitting on, right? You know, okay, how do you, you know, the ABC, the automatic thoughts as they come up, you know, how do you challenge them? How do you reckon, you know, how do you, you know, sit on them, you know, push them back down, essentially challenge them is really the operative term. Um, but what if those thoughts didn't manifest the way that they did, you know, and, and that's really at the heart of it. Um, you know, so almost back to unpacking a little bit of what you described, you know, as the process, the mechanism of what's going on. Yeah. And this is overly simplified, but, you know, as we, accru you know, this is where that great word trauma, you know, sometimes gets way overly utilized. Well, as we accrue experiences, you know, maybe adverse childhood experiences, whatever it might be, you know, could be traumatic, however we want to categorize them, it has its effect on us developmentally, implants, it encodes something in our minds, whether or not in our brains, in, in our system. How we then react to that, you know, from that point on, you know, could be altered. And then we, you know, kind of altered a little bit you know, in our directionality, kind of like the proverbial, even one degree, you know, on a compass bearing, by mm -hmm. the time you go a hundred miles is, is a long distance. So that then, you know, becomes a data point in our mind. And over time, you know, as we tell our stories, you know, when we look back on it and I did this and this happened, our brains, our, our systems become encoded with, you know, these narratives that play out. Uh, consciously and unconsciously. I'm a this, this always happens, or, you know, back to that, you know, default mode network, defense mechanism that might come up unconsciously. But if at the heart, we're able to kind of reset those so they don't come up in the same way, then we don't need to challenge them. 
that kind of goes with the sitting with. Maybe we gain a different perspective. So it's, okay, you know, this did happen. I get a deeper understanding of why and how I then move on with my life. Just kind of in the interest of our time, I want to jump ahead a little bit and say, and you had mentioned this just recently too, that with the development of the new therapies, you know, I tend to temper my excitement um, thinking about misapplication, ethical violations, um, and in this case as well, improperly trained or untrained practitioners kind of bastardizing uh, the process of potentially doing harm. What are some of the potential ethical issues that can arise um, when that happens? Great question. And, you know, a huge, huge issue. You're looking at one of the most vulnerable intersections, probably known to humans, you know, at the very heart of how, you know, these medications are working by really opening up the mind like that. What does that really mean? You now have an individual in the most vulnerable of states. Uh, so, yes, you know, that right there opens the door to what would be the most obvious to maybe not so obvious of, you know, a lot of concerns because you're dealing with such a sensitive material, such a vulnerable, sensitive state that the ethical considerations are tremendous. And, and the fact that there are not established, you know, best standards, protocols, those things really is a, a paramount concern right now. And what a lot of energy is being put into, you know, how does that happen? That being said, you know, what are some very specific things that are coming up? Um, things of, you know, the sexual, the intimate nature, uh, which is a huge problem in the therapeutic space, full stop, exponentially more so here. Mm -hmm. Um whole lot of charlatans, you know, who back to, you know, the idea of by definition of what psychedelic is, is the medication does most of the work, you know, as opposed to I'm going to be the one who's going to heal you. Uh, so the real wild west is emerging. Um, and even, you know, it does need to be mentioned part of that hype, part of what are becoming more and more common talking point. Psychedelics are non-addictive. You know, what we know about addiction, you know, how could you make that statement? You know, there are psychedelic medications that can be you know, mm. misused and an individual can develop all different forms of dependencies or aspects of addictions with so other concerns, you know, ethically speaking, how do we apply and prescribe? You know, there's some concerns coming up right now, even in the established legal space, ketamine, you know, almost mail order DIY, you know, yeah. with some of the startup organizations happening right now. Very little control over you know, monitoring of you know, how and how frequently is an individual taking it and what is that setting them up to do. So a very, very yeah. wide range of concern. And really what's at the heart is the lack of a framework. Um, that's being addressed right now. You know, California yeah. has a treat initiative, which is to me one of the more exciting frameworks. Um, you know, it's a five billion dollar ballot initiative for the state of California to fund research, um, the standardization, regulation, basically the whole picture. Yeah. Um, you've got you know Prop One Twenty Two in Colorado, or Forty Five in Oregon. You know whether decriminalization, legalization, or creating channels of legalized 
therapeutic applications in licensed therapists. You know, so it, it's kind of becoming regulated, but it's not yet. Um, and because it's not regulated enough yet, a lot of pitfalls. Um, yeah. So in my I head. Think- in my head, I see unregulated, and I see venture capitalists seeing funding programs that may or may not be legit uh, because it will fulfill a, a, a financial need, right? Yeah. Uh, and that can happen. I'm not saying that that all venture capital behind treatment is bad, but it's a risk. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I agree with you. You know, it's not to say, you know, Capitalism is bad at all, uh, mm-hmm. but it's you know what's driving it, and and yes, I you know there have been some examples of that. Um, so I guess what I'd also like to put more emphasis on is the other side of the coin. Given that, what can we empower an individual, or how can we best help an individual if this is something that they are contemplating? And Best advice to that is due diligence, due diligence, and due diligence. Um, Really, you know, given the context of what we've discussed, you know, look at, you know, who is the provider, you know, how much clinical training have they received and expertise, how much, you know, expertise and experience do they have with psychedelic medication and journey? There's been an absolute stampede of licensed therapists becoming certified, undergoing clinical training in the last six months alone, but the overwhelming majority of them have zero experience. Uh, so it, it's it's really challenging, you know, for an individual. It's still at that kind of DIY level. So due diligence yep. is key. Another issue that kind of arises for me, um, and it's bigger than both of us, is the psychedelic assisted uh, therapy tends to be available for the privileged traditional health insurers there's an article in in forbes in 2022 traditional health insurers right now are staying away from it but there is a specialty company out of boston called anthea which will allow uh employers to purchase separate if they want to cover that which i think is a great start for employers how do we raise awareness so that the really vulnerable populations, the indigent, the poor, the folks that don't have access, make this available to those who it would benefit? hundred um, percent. And that also brings up, you know, a greater issue, you know, of, you know, the disparities and inequities in healthcare full stop. Mm-hmm. Uh, and how do you, you know, properly engage and effectively engage in marginalized communities that are, right. you know, not receiving, you know, equitable health care and access to treatment. So right there, you know, we're already, you know, kind of losing that battle. Yeah, you know, with psychedelic assisted therapy, you know, more of, you know, the niche type of treatments. Yeah, it's typically coded for the privileged. Yeah. Um, a few things that are really rocking that one. The recognition of the impact specifically on vets and reversal of suicidality, the overlays with PTSD has been so profound that probably unlike any other, I shouldn't say that, there has been such a proliferation of foundations and other nonprofit organizations coming up to fund and promote 
access to care and really actively reaching out into marginalized communities or, or marginalized mm. populations and, and how do we do that more excitedly than that um has to do with like what's going on with you know maps pbc just you know shepherding mdma all through you know the phases of clinical trials and now they're submitting you know to the fda for approval um right. so the fda or uh, backup you know since all of that has been in, you know, kind of process, FDA's granted breakthrough status, uh, breakthrough therapy designation, multiple times, multiple therapies, that the writing was already on the wall. The AMA, within the last few months alone, um, released draft language, or no, yeah, released draft language, but, you know, essentially established CPT codes for you know, for third-party reimbursement, mainstream healthcare to reimburse for psychedelic therapy. Um, draft language was drawn up for the FDA. Mm -hmm. The FDA has to approve it, but it's already kind of the wheels are in motion to to have. And, and frankly, insurance companies have an interest in this. You know, if, you know, we connect the dots that we actually might have you know, more effective treatments yeah. now at our disposal, then that that's in their interest. It's going to save them money at the end of the day, which I hate to make it about that, but, you know. It, that's the reality of, of insurance coverage. That's the reality of that is that what's the benefit for them? And their benefit is they're spending less. Right. You know, if, if more people are well, they're right. in a better position. And, and that's and, not a terrible thing. I mean, I know it, we're not the, the disparity in healthcare uh, we know exists. We're not going to solve that. This is just one area that we it's noticeable. But we've got to show data. It's all about data, right? It is, and you know, I, I want to be mindful of the time and in an interest of that. Maybe this is a good like kind of illustration to wrap things up with, where the data the evidence is now so robust so evolved you know so mature it's, it's not in the you know it's out there it's alternative anymore that it, there's not much question in the scientific medical community and even further you know it's a cross-aisle issue you know i, I was mm -hmm. at a conference over the summer there about 12,000 clinician scientists from around the world, all around psychedelic science. Rick Perry gave the opening address. That, uh, one of the most conservative, you know, and, and he even acknowledged, like, yeah, I bet you thought, uh, shocked to see me up here, you know, but look, you know, back to what he saw data and in person uh, and has heard anecdotally about the effects on veterans' populations and the healing potential. Um, the excitement, the support, you know, has really permeated all facets of, of politics, culture. Well, sadly, except for addiction healthcare, but maybe that's another whole, you that's, know, uh, yeah. conversation in and of itself. You know, how do we bring that space a little bit more forward into, you know, the modern ages? Um, but we've got movement there as well. Um, so, yeah, you know, the data is clear. The evidence is clear. Um, so uh, it's it's getting it out there and and getting people talking about it and we've got to create a demand. That's really we've got to 
kind of put pressure on our elected officials to look at the data to pay and if because if 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 no one tells them if we don't put it out there it's not going to be addressed um just right. one more thing to close uh, to go back to something that i started with and it's we know there are pockets of the field that are going to reject this um based on that visceral reaction so how do we challenge that conventional wisdom and encourage people to make more informed decisions to do that due diligence as you just referenced and where can people learn more that's a a lot to that question so i'm going to choose one barb to focus on to begin with one specific overreaching argument specifically from you know the addiction treatment space is using one drug to help treat another you know and, um you know, how does this reconcile with abstinence-based treatment and philosophy? I don't think not it has a commentary. To. Exactly. And so this is not by any means a commentary right. on abstinence-based philosophy. It's more a matter of here's the answer. It doesn't have to, you know, contradict abstinence philosophy. If one were to go in for a major procedure in an OR and have to be administered a general anesthetic in that controlled setting. They wouldn't question it so much. Maybe some would, but you know, for the most part, that then wouldn't be a question. Maybe if it's oh, I was prescribed, you know, take-home medication, that would be a different conversation. But in that controlled medical setting, it's a non-issue. That is how I would like psychedelic-assisted therapy to be analogized in very specific applications. We're dealing with such a rigorous process of screening and controls. Uh, and support and structure that it is really analogous to, you know, undergoing a procedure in an OR. So there really is no contradiction to abstinence. Um, it's patient choice. Whatever the client chooses is what we're going to explore with them. Uh, if a client says to me, I prefer an abstinence based or I want to go through a 12 step, that, then let's do that. Absolutely. Absolutely. It doesn't impact the person who says, I really want to find out more about psychedelic treatment. I'm not sure. Hey, let's explore that as well. Uh, it's apples so to oranges. Yeah, and that, that just sets us up for the ultimate, you know, elephant. Yeah. Uh, you know, that just strutted through the room, which was like, look at the ultimate irony of Bill W., you know, the founder of Alcoholics Anonymous, who he himself through the late 60s and 70s underwent a whole lot of you know or experienced a lot of benefit from psychedelic assisted therapy he pitched to the aa world congress you know embracing at the time it was lsd you know that was being utilized um you know, so there absolutely not only is a way, but there's a tremendous precedence that's been set. Uh, so, yes, you know, there are many lanes we can move forward. We can all get along. We can all coexist. Um, how does one do their best due diligence and where can they go? Uh, Unfortunately, it is a little bit of DIY, you know, so some of the yep. first steps I'd say, you know, well, check their credentials, this and that, that might not tell the whole picture. Um, so, you know, one of the best first steps is maybe, you know, not a guide to help you guide you through the experience itself, but maybe just somebody who is credentialed to help you navigate this space um, would be a good first step. 
That's um, a great idea. Are, there are, you know, that that's a big focus of my work is, you know, just that, you know, that yeah. that's the idea of the workshops that I give yeah. or, or other consultations that I provide. Um, and I am doing what a lot of other people are doing. So I'm not the only one by any right. means. Um, that I, you know, endorse as probably the safest first step because that is almost like a pre-screen of a pre-screen, even help you evaluate. Is this something that is what I'm thinking it is. And then, you know, given that, all right, I, how do I now navigate, you know, this new landscape that's really, really tough. There are no maps, you know, there are no markers, you know, or the ones that there are don't really tell the, the picture. I think it goes down to something that we say we believe in, and many people do, and not everyone falls through, is informed consent. When we let somebody know the truth about what they may experience, the risks and the rewards, and let them make a decision, we have effective treatment because the, it's what the person wants. They know, and we're not, we're not, we're being transparent as we possibly can with that individual. And that goes across the board of medical treatment. Absolutely. You know, it's where that word informed gets so diluted in that phrase, informed consent, but it's, that is the most important word. You know? mm -hmm. So, yeah, so, you know, we need more of that. Well, uh, Peter, I want to say thanks for joining us today. I really appreciate your time. I look forward to seeing you in the city on the 27th at Nushama. Um, that's going to be a great event. And uh, anyone who's listening, if you want more information, uh, you can certainly reach out to me. I'll get you some links where you can find out some stuff. Peter, I'll make sure that I put the Nushama in your website, uh, make that available on the links. Right. And thanks for joining us, everybody. We will catch you next time. Thank you for joining us, and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks for having me, Jeff. It was great to be here.